Thank you for checking out the Ironworks Church Sermon Podcast. We are a family of Christians living throughout the Westchester region that strives to be an open door to all who are interested in the way of Jesus by finding belonging with us and seeing how the reign of God transforms our everyday lives. It is our hope and prayer that this sermon helps you follow Jesus in your everyday lives as you seek to love people in your place well. Thank you for listening. Let's uh, turn to God's Word this morning. Today we are continuing in our fall sermon series. We're looking specifically at the Gospel of John. Uh, Each week we're asking a question about what does Jesus have to do with our lives. So think about Jesus and the questions of our lives thinking about Jesus and our joy, thinking about Jesus and our religion. And today we're coming to Jesus and our shame. Jesus and our shame. And this is really a beautiful passage. And um, there's a, it tends to be a rule for preachers that we should never share how long our sermon was. And this was a long sermon that I basically just cut in half. This is, and the, the reason for that is because this is such a beautiful passage. It really is. It's a beautiful passage. When you think about Jesus Christ, it's important to know who he is, what he did for you upon the cross, but it's also important for your soul to consider how Jesus interacted and treated others. And that's what this passage really gets at. And as you think about the logic of the Gospel of John, like John 3, Jesus is talking to the teacher of Israel, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And now in John 4, Jesus is talking to someone who would be, who may even be considered as a heretic, as an outcast of outcasts. And these are, are meant to go together. Jesus said, said to um, Nicodemus that God so loved the world. And then the next thing that Jesus does is that he goes to the overlooked, what one commentator called the God forsaken place of the Middle East during Jesus' day. So let's give our careful attention to God's word. This is, these words are given for you from God. And Jesus went to the cross to ensure that you would receive these words. This is John 4, and we'll be reading from verses 3 to 30. Let's give our careful attention to God's word. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, 
Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here that when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and, and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, and he is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us such all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Well, friends, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this word these words that you have given to us, and we pray for your spirit to be at work within our hearts, that we would be drawn to you, that we would be convicted of our, of our sin, that we would see of your love and your joy that is ours because of what Christ has done for us this morning. So, Father, help us to know your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning, I just want to jump into this text uh, because there's a lot here for us to consider. And how I want us to think about this is first to think about the woman at the well, the man at the well, and the offer at the well. And that's going to be really our, our, our outline for this morning. So as we begin to consider this text, we immediately see the woman at the well. And this woman is an outcast among outcasts. And in many ways, she is what psychologists, phenomenologists call othered. And this is a word that means that they are treated fundamentally different and separated from others due to something about them. It could be their gender, it could be their religion, it could be their class, it could be something else entirely. And so this woman is an outcast. She is othered because she is ethnically a Samaritan. She is a woman and because she is a sinner. And I want us to think about each one of these things to help us understand this meeting that she has with Jesus. As we first thought that she is, or we first see that she is an, is an outcast due to her ethnic identity as a Samaritan, to help us understand this, Samaria was historically part of the promised land that is given to Israel. It's a part of the promised land that's given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's given from God to God's people. 
but it's specifically Samaria was the capital city. It was the leading city of the rebellion against King David's descendants. And so then what ended up happening, like the, those, that rebellion, that was 10 tribes, those 10 tribes were defeated by the Assyrian Empire and taken into exile in 722 B.C. And during that time of Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity, that was an area that was recolonized and resettled as Israelites were taken elsewhere into the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire brought other displaced peoples and settled them there. And so these peoples would return to the Canaanite religions. They would bring their own religions with them and more. And so Samaritans, even further, as they were looking into the Israelites, the Jewish religion, they actually only accepted the first five books of Moses, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There were other things about them that separated them from the rest of the Jews, And so the Jews actually looked at them as illegitimate descendants of Abraham and Jacob. And so fast forward from, um, like, actually not fast forward, but rewind the clock about 100 years from when Jesus lived. The Samaritans actually attacked Jerusalem and desecrated the temple with bones during the Feast of Passover. And so if you understand the Old Testament law, that faithful Israelites could not celebrate Passover if they touched unclean bones. So the Samaritans would actually harass them for their religious practices. So that gets at some of the animosity in the background between Jews and Samaritans, how there's this 500-year-long resentment between these two ethnic groups. So not only is she a Samaritan, she's also a woman. See that within Jesus' time, women were forbidden from being students of rabbis. In fact, rabbis would not even talk to their wives in public because that would be perceived as scandalous. It would be seen as improper. That's the background to her gender being in play here. And then on seeing her as a woman, Jesus was expected to courteously withdraw about 20 feet, indicating that it was both safe and culturally appropriate for her to approach the well. And only then could she come to the well. But so she comes to this well to draw water, and she sees that Jesus isn't moving whatsoever, and she approaches the well. And Jesus just did not move. And then there is a third reason coming to play here. And as we, I mean, this is something that we learn and discover. It's not obvious that everything that we have said thus far has been very obvious to Jesus. As Jesus comes to Sychar, a Samaritan village, and a woman comes out to draw water, those are obvious things. That everyone around them would have known those things, even if you are a stranger to this community. But we learn throughout this course that there's something else at play that's deeper than her ethnicity or gender that is earning her the label of an outcast. She's been married five times. She's been married five times and currently lives with a man who is not her husband. Now at this point, it's, it's actually just something to note that commentators don't, really know what to make of this right now. And so some even will treat her very harshly. But what that actually does is dismiss this very important fact that is a sign of the, that is a, one of the sign of the times during this 
time period. Because in the ancient world, women had no power to divorce their husband. Think about that for a woman who's been divorced five times. That here's a woman who has been divorced five times. She did not initiate that, those, those divorce proceedings. They were the ones to end it. This is an incalculable amount of rejection to live through. And so in many ways, when Jesus points this out, it's like, hey, go call your husband and tell him to come here. You should hear the pain in her voice or perhaps the jaded bitterness. I have no husband. That's how you should hear this because she is hurting. She is hurting. She is jaded. And it's even worth noting that she is currently sinning, living with a man who is not her husband. And so she is probably wondering within her mind, within her heart, within her soul, what is the matter with me? that would cause five men to reject me. What is the matter with me? And so within her Samaritan village, she is a woman to be pitied. She is a woman who is outcast. Her, she, is an, she is an outcast because of her, her sin in many ways. Her village is treating her in a way that would naturally lead her to think that she is unlovable. And perhaps that's something she believes about herself. And so she comes to this well, and in many ways, it's no wonder that she comes to this well at 12 o'clock in the day. This is not the normal time for anyone to come out to a well to draw water. The women of the village would tend to do this together early in the morning during the cooler hours. Because who wants to go out and work and do hard labor in the middle of the day when the sun is at its hottest? Who would want to do that? But women would also do this together for one simple reason, being that safety in numbers. But also number two is that, like, if we, we especially as we considered that it's not culture, was not culturally appropriate for men and women to interact. You gotta love how Jesus just throws that out the window. But it's not culturally appropriate. So what actually would happen is that women would help other women pick up these heavy stone jars. They may be actually they weren't stone. Somewhere, but the ones I'm talking about were heavy leather jars that they would pick up, hold on their shoulder. And just imagine if you've ever been backpacking, uh, you know how, how heavy water weighs and how it's good to always um, be able to pump water from a spring. Water is heavy. That is the point I'm trying to make. And it would be cumbersome for her to pick that leather jar and put it on her head all by herself. She is an outcast among outcasts. She is completely othered by the Samaritan village. And friends, here's the point that we need to consider for our own hearts and lives. That if we can't relate to her, Jesus cannot work in our hearts. We need to be honest about the pain and the depth of rejection within our own lives. We have to be honest about the ways that we've been othered and mistreated. And we need to be able to admit that shame is a powerful force within our life because Jesus wants to do something in our lives. And this brings us to our second point, the man at the well, the man at the well. And so our story begins quite a way, verse 3, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And just to point this out, that this is not something that a good self-respecting Jew would do. 
that good self-respecting Jews would actually travel around Samaria and not travel through it. But notice this in our, in our text in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus did not just travel through Samaria as if, it, as if it's passive. This, there is something at work here that this is a divine compulsion. That there's this divine, holy divine movement that's leading Jesus to go to this place. That there is someone directing his steps. He just told Nicodemus that God so loved the world. So the point being is that God loved the entire cosmos, not just the Jews. And so Jesus is actually fleshing that out for us. He's fleshing it out for us that God loves Samaritans as well. That this place of Samaria is not a God-forsaken place. It is a place that is loved by God. It is a city to love and to serve. And Jesus finds himself in Samaria because he is led there. He is directed there. He is compelled to go there by the Holy Spirit. And so he arrives, tired from his journey, and he sits on his well. And so Kenneth Bailey is this one commentator. By the way, he's excellent. He writes this book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And Kenneth Bailey was a missionary in the Middle East during the 20th century for 40-plus years. So he is looking at the Gospels through a cultural lens, helping us understand the cultural dynamics of being in the, the Middle East and so as Bailey is making this point in his commentary, he is pointing out that this man comes to the well. Jesus comes to the well. Let's just point out the obvious, that he has no jar, he has no cup. And so he is deliberately putting himself in need of this woman. He had no jar, he had no cup. In fact, what, the point that Bailey is making is that Jesus is actually useless that Jesus is doing something here, where here's a woman to be pitied by her village, that even Jesus is actually making himself be in service of this woman, that he needs her, that he is more pitiable than she is. So as we continue to, we continue to see Jesus meeting this woman, that Jesus breaks all these social taboos here. He is talking to a woman. He tosses the whatever cultural appropriateness of, of men talking to women. He throws that right out the door. He overlooks this 500-year resentment between the Jews and Samaritans. As he talks to her, as, as, yes, he knows she is a sinner. He knows her heart more deeply than she does. And they start talking. And one of the things that's really humorous about this conversation is that she heckles him. She really does heckle him. It's like, don't you know? Like, are you an idiot? Don't you know I'm a Samaritan? She heckles him. But yet, as they go, as they talk, as they're next to each other at the well, Jesus never once treats her as an outcast. Jesus never once others her. And he does something completely different. He treats her with love. He treats her with respect. And they have a theological conversation. Last week in John 3, we just saw Jesus teach, talking with the teacher of Israel, the most well-respected theologian in all of Israel. And we saw Jesus actually heckling him. Aren't you the teacher of Israel? Shouldn't you know these things? But Jesus treats this woman 
with a, a, a level of respect where he acknowledges that she is a serious theologian. That she is a serious theologian because when it comes to the matters of our own hearts, we are all serious theologians. When it comes to matters of our heart, we're all serious theologians. But what Jesus even goes deeper than that, that when you look at the entire New Testament and you consider a theology of worship, this passage here in John 4 is the most important passage, this, the most important teaching of theology in the entire New Testament. Jesus revealed immense, weighty things to her and not to Nicodemus. That's what we need to see here. And so Jesus is actually in the midst of breaking down barriers. He's, he's, through, breaking, he's overlooking social taboos, all in the pursuit of uplifting her. He's treating her with honor, respect, and dignity. And then the conversation takes a sudden turn. Because Jesus says, hey, bring your husband here. And you, with the pain of rejection in her voice, you hear her say, I have no husband. And so... How would he know this? How would Jesus, a stranger to this entire village, how would Jesus know this? What's the text say? How does she know that Jesus knows this? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's think of very briefly for this, about this. Why would Jesus tell her to bring her husband? Why would Jesus put his finger and point point out his finger at her pain and her shame and her rejection see within the entire bible prophets have a specific role and function think about the prophet amos amos says that and he points out the hypocrisy of israel and they say put he says put away your harps put away your lyres and just stop worshiping god because you are neglecting the poor. You continue going that passage. That's the passage that says, let justice roll. Let justice roll down. Think about what Jeremiah said in our call to confession, where God says to his people that they have forsaken me. What prophets do is that prophets expose sin. Prophets represent a holy God to a sinful people. And so we often think that within our lives, within our daily lives, that we often think about when people, when they call us out on our sin, that they are seeking to condemn us. But it's important to remember, again, John 3, that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. That's important. And that was the conversation he had with Nicodemus. See, when the Spirit is calling us out on our sin, He is actually seeking to convict us of our sin. Not con Condemnation and conviction are different. Because condemnation leads us to shame. Condemnation leads us to despair. But conviction is meant to restore our joy. Jesus wants to expose our sin, expose our guilt, expose our shame in order to show us the deep, deep love of Jesus. Jesus is exposing our sin so that we would know and experience the living water of God that he is offering us. In order for us to have this living water, in order for us to have this eternal life, our sin must be exposed. Our sin needs to be dealt with. We know something about Jesus that she does not know. That Jesus dealt with her. 
sin, that Jesus dealt with our shame, that Jesus dealt with our guilt. Think about our call to worship, that despising the shame, what did Jesus do? He went to the cross. We know that about Jesus. And so we don't have to freak out at this point. We don't have to freak out because we are known and we are loved by God. But what does the Samaritan woman hear? Like, she, it freaks her out. It would freak any of us out. Let's be honest. It would freak any of us out. Because she suddenly realizes that she is known. She, and she is scared because she is known. So Sam Alberry he explains why for us. This is what Sam Alberry says. The risk that we all face in this world is that the more we are known, we think that we will be less loved as a consequence. We worry that if people really knew us, then they would not love us. That's what happened to the Samaritan woman. The men who knew her most intimately had rejected her, and her own community had ostracized her. But what does Jesus do? Jesus embraces her. He loves her. He cares for her. And he even commissions her as one of his own disciples. And perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. So there's the woman at the well, there's the man at the well, there's the offer at the well. And to paraphrase Jesus' words from verses uh, 10 and 13, that if you knew the free offer, the free gift of God, and who you are talking to, then you would ask for living water. Verse 13, anyone who drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Not ever. The water I give him, the water I give, and this is Eugene Peterson now, will be an artisan spring within gushing fountains of endless life. Got to love Eugene Peterson talking about the artisan spring. It's not tap water. It's not just water running through down a brook. It is an artisan spring. See, friends, we are made. We are made, we are created, we are designed for life with God. We are made to be known by God. We are made to be loved by God, where we enjoy the fullness of God's love every moment of every second of our days, of the moments of our lives. But all of that has been lost by sin. We are alienated from God. And what Jesus is telling us is that we still long for, we still thirst for, we still crave this life with God. But instead of coming to God, instead of coming to Jesus for this water, we are looking to all these other things that would quench our thirst, or so we think. That Jesus is saying that it's only him that satisfies our, the thirst. It's only him that quenches the longing of our hearts. But we settle for less. We look to all these other things and we settle. And so C.S. Lewis, and I know I'm quoting him for two weeks in a row. It's, thank you. He says this in mere Christianity. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, yet there is such a thing as water. And he goes on, he says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. And the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it in the first place. It, satisfy it in the first place. 
that they were only meant to arouse it, to suggest the real, th the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand to never despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, I must never mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy, echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I believe it was Rockefeller who was asked the question, how much money is enough? And he said, only a little bit more. We're not made. Our hearts cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. King David said it clearly that in Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for God. Now, friends, all of us, as we think about these yearnings, yearnings and these desires and these longings from our hearts, all of us have our own different understanding and conception of what they are and our own quiet way of seeking it. But Jesus' claim is that nothing will ever satisfy these longing, our, the thirst of our soul. Whatever we seek to fill that void, whatever we seek to satisfy those things, it will not be enough. It will never be enough. The more money you have, it's not enough. The more power, not enough. The deeper, significant relationships you have with your family member, members, not enough. You can have the best reputation in the world, not enough. What if you had all the power in the world? Not enough. Friends, what we see here is Jesus saying that only I, only Jesus satisfies, only Jesus quenches, only he satisfies this woman's thirst and our thirst. But before she could experience this soul-quenching thirst, she had to come face to face with her shame. She had to come face to face with the sin in her heart, the darkest corners of her life. And yet in the words of Henry Nowen from The Inner Voice of Love, Here's something he says, that you complain that it's hard for you to pray. It's hard for you to experience the love of Jesus. But Jesus dwells in your fears. And when you befriend, and his language is true self, but when you befriend your true self and discover that it is good and beautiful, you will see Jesus there. This is the line that I love. Where you are most human, most yourself, weakest, there Jesus lives. Bringing your fearful self home is bringing Jesus home. See, the point is that no matter how deep you think your sin goes or your guilt or your shame, no matter how deep you think that goes, God's love is deeper. God's love is deeper for you. See, Jesus changes her life. Look what happens next. That we actually ended just before we got to some of this, but her life changes. That because Jesus knew her better than she knew herself, he actually introduced her to herself. He opened up her own heart for her to see her deep need of God. He did not condemn her. He did not shame. He did not bully her. He convicted her so that she would no longer be enslaved by her fears or her shame. His love is infinitely deeper than her own shame. And so there's another detail to no point out in this brief encounter. She came to the well. What did she come with? And what did Jesus need of her? 
He needed her to lower her own jar to draw it up so they can drink. And all of a sudden, you get to verse 28. What does she leave at the, at the, at the well? So the w- woman left her water jar. She came to that well to get water, but after tasting the living water that Jesus offered, she leaves the jar there on the wall, on the well. And she goes into the city, and she, she tells the entire village, come and see a man who has told me everything that I have known. It's not known. Tell, come see the man who has told me everything that I have done in my life. Do you think a person who was in fear of being, uh, of having her sin exposed would say that? Do you think a person who is enslaved by shame would say that? She says this with joy. So let me just share one last word, and then we're done. And this is actually a, a last word for the church. I want to talk specifically to friend, friends here, if you're brothers and sisters in Christ. What ends the, what ends the conversation? It's the disciples. The disciples return, and, and John is very quick to point out that they are talking amongst themselves. They're not saying this to Jesus. Why are you talking to her? But they're wondering this in their minds. Why are you talking to her, they wonder. And so Kenneth Bailey, again, he says that he notes that the air is heavy with rejection with their return, with an awkward hostility in their presence. That awkward hostility is nowhere to be seen in Jesus' own presence. And so one of the fundamental purposes of the church is that we extend the hospitality, the welcome, the love of Christ to this world. Like Paul put it this way in Romans, that welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The church is meant to embody the presence of Christ within the world. The church is the body of Christ. We are called to extend compassion to sinners. We're called to serve the poor, the orphan, the fatherless. So one of my friends, a fellow Presbyterian elder, uh, who's also a counselor, his name's Luke Calvin, he said this, is that, and this is, and this was in an interview on a podcast, he said this, that when you are used to feeling othered, then you will feel othered everywhere. But the church is meant to be a family of others, full of the least of these, the littlest ones, the Samaritans, the widows, the lepers, the orphans. And see, friends, I want to bring this up because sometimes being a part of the church, that the church can, your experience in a church can be the complete opposite of that. That when you go to a church, you can feel like an outcast. You can feel othered, where you feel like you don't belong, where you feel shamed for your sin, shamed for your economics class, your relationship status, or more. What I want to say to this, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that if you have experienced the infinitely deep love of Jesus, then the power of shame is broken in your lives. And that we should all be like this wonderful woman here, where we are outcasts, where we are, yes, othered by our sin, but Jesus comes to us in love because we are sinners. He does not avoid us because of our sin. He actually moves because of us. He moves towards us because of our sin. See, friends, the church is meant to be full of others. Let it never be said, may it never be said, and this is a, should be a prayer for all of us, may it never be said that people feel like outcasts in the family of God. Because that is why we are, that's why God makes us his children.
And so friends, we would also be like the Samaritan woman who would go to her, her village and say, hey, come and see the man named Jesus Christ. Come see the Messiah who has told me everything that I have done. Let's pray.